We have sung of the King of glory, and now we begin to read the book of the King, the Gospel of Matthew. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find Bibles there on the pew in front of you, and you're welcome to make your way there along with us to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 17 in just a moment. We have laid the foundation for the book of Matthew. We've considered this idea of the king that uh, we've been looking for all the way back since the beginning of the Bible, since Genesis chapter 3. God's people have been looking for a king. And we have considered the big picture of the book of Matthew, but now we begin to work our way through. And for those of you who are familiar with the book of Matthew, or you've got your Bible open there, and you look at that first page, you are underwhelmed. Because you know that the book begins with a genealogy, this long list of names. And let's be honest, none of us, if we were the ones in charge, we wouldn't begin the story with a genealogy. We wouldn't begin with this long list of names. If you were reading a book and the first chapter of a book were a long list of names, you would probably skip to chapter 2. If you were watching a TV show and you saw that that episode was a long list of names, you would probably, thank you, buddy, you would probably wait and just skip to the next episode. But God, in his wisdom, has given us a genealogy here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, and so we dare not miss it. If you found your place in God's word, would you stand for the reading of the scriptures? Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as I pray for us. Father in heaven, at first glance, we're not quite sure what to do with this list of names. But you've told us that your word is good, it is sufficient, and it is profitable. So we pray that you would give us attentive ears and attentive minds this morning to listen to your word, that we would hear the message you have for us and the goodness of the genealogy of your son, Jesus Christ, by whose name we pray, amen. Earlier this year, there was a coronation in England. There's a new king on the throne, as most of you are probably aware. But just in case you're not sure, the reason that Charles is now the king of England is not because he's the most qualified man for the job. They didn't take out a search and say, hmm, let's do interviews, let's see who's the most capable king that we can have. The reason that Charles is on the throne of England is because before him, his mother, Elizabeth, was on the throne of England. And before Elizabeth was on the throne of England, her father, George, was on the throne of England. And before you think the reason he was on the throne is because his father, no, first, it's because his brother abdicated the throne of England. And you understand that very quickly, the royal family line gets complicated. The royal family tree can get a little twisted. It's got some stories in it. There's some scandals there in the royal family tree. And if that's true for the royal family of England, how much more is it true for your family and my family? It's certainly true of the family of our Lord. Family trees hold secrets. Things get complicated really quick. And that's certainly true of our Lord's family tree, the genealogy that we find here in Matthew chapter 1. Look at that first line that we get here in verse 1, the book of the genealogy or the book of the generation. Now, Christians wonder, they debate, is that Matthew's title for the whole book? Is that his title for the section of the book? Is that his title just for this genealogy? I'm not sure that the answer to that question is as important as the word that Matthew uses here. He says the book of the genealogy, but literally it's Genesis the book of the Genesis. Now, we know that word. That takes our minds automatically back to the first book of the Bible, where you see that phrase in Genesis, the book of the generations, or these are the generations. You see, we may have missed out on that, but Matthew's first readers would certainly have noticed. They would have been reminded of the beginning of God's story. And so now they're thinking, this is the book of Genesis all over again. This is important. Everything that Matthew has to say is just as important as what Moses had to say back in the book of Genesis. Jesus, that Matthew's going to tell us about, Jesus is bringing about a new creation. He's giving us a new beginning, a new story, a fresh start. And by the time we get to the end of the genealogy, we're going to realize that a fresh start, a new beginning, is exactly what we need. Do you remember how the book of Matthew ends? It ends with Jesus saying, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Think about this. This is good. The book begins by saying, This Jesus, he's been with us from the beginning. This is the Genesis. And he's with us all the way to the end. This is who Jesus is. This Jesus that Matthew is going to tell us about. Well, how do we propose to work our way through this genealogy? I'm going to give you three titles that we see here in verse 1. We're going to notice three divisions that are within this genealogy, and we will end with uh, three encouragements from this genealogy. 
So if you want a roadmap, we'll have three titles, three divisions, and three encouragements. But all in all, this is what you need to understand. There's good news in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You may not realize it now, but Lord willing, by the end of our time together this morning, I hope you'll be persuaded there's good news in the genealogy of the king. Well, Matthew begins with this book of the genealogy of Jesus. But you may realize Jesus was a common name in those days. There were lots of people named Jesus. After all, it's just the Greek version of Joshua. Joshua, the common Old Testament name. And so we ask, who is this Jesus? And Matthew says, I've got three titles for you. This Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. You see that there in verse 1, those three titles. He's the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We looked at this in greater detail two weeks ago when we were thinking about this big picture in the Bible, the story that the Bible tells about a king. And so I won't rehash all of that, but you remember that the Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. That's a title. It's Messiah, the anointed one, the one that the Jews have been looking for their entire history, all the way since Genesis 3. They're looking for this Messiah, and they're looking for him not to come and save them from their sins. They're looking for him to come and rescue them from their troubles. They're looking for someone who will make Israel great again and build back better and all those political slogans. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for a political solution. That's what they want from their Messiah. But Matthew has a lot more to say to us about Jesus. He is the true Messiah, the Christ. But he's also the son of David. You remember that we saw the promises made to David and that from David's line there would be a king and a kingdom which has no end. And Israel's been waiting and every one of David's sons have failed. Ultimately, they've all died. There is no one reigning from the throne of David at the time of the writing of Matthew. And then uh, Matthew reminds us that Jesus is the son of Abraham. You remember the promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, that through Abraham, through his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Do you want to know who this Jesus is? He is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, those are the three titles, and you can imagine the first readers of this book, and maybe yourself, you hear this and you think, wow, Matthew, this sounds fantastic. This is the Jesus we're looking for. This is the Messiah we're longing for. How can you prove it to us, Matthew? Tell us more about this Jesus. How do we know that he really is who you say he is? Matthew's answer to that question is a genealogy. It's a long list of names. So you may be wondering, how do you handle a genealogy? Do you just go through and find a few things about each person in the list? No, that's not how we handle this genealogy. We're not going through and getting a biographical sketch of each person in the list because Matthew tells us that's not the point. He gives us verse 17 to help us understand the big picture of the genealogy. Look at verse 17. Matthew says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. He gives us a a little clue right there at the beginning of the verse. He says, so, based off of everything he said, based off of this long genealogy, here are these three divisions. We've seen three titles, but the genealogy is divided up into three divisions, and each one is balanced with 14 generations. 
What's the point of that? Why, why does Matthew emphasize three times that there are 14 generations in each section of the genealogy? Well, lots of people believe, and most scholars agree, that this number 14 represents David's name in Hebrew. They had a way of putting numbers with their alphabet, and so if you take the numbers, the consonants in David's name, and you add them up, you get the number 14. Well, that's certainly true, and it would be emphasizing David, but I'm going to show you that David is emphasized regardless of whether or not you know this old Hebrew custom, because the fact is that none of us do. None of us would have recognized that that was the significance of the 14 generations had not someone told us that was the significance of the 14 generations. In fact, I don't uh, think that Matthew's first audience, the Gentiles who read this in the first century, they wouldn't have known that that was the significance of the 14. Only the Jewish readers would have known that there's a significance with these numbers. Well, we do understand Matthew makes very clear that there are three divisions, and they're balanced. There's uh, some equity going on there, 14 generations, there's symmetry, that's a better word. It's not that one section has more names than the other, and so uh, one section should be elevated over the other section. He's letting us know there's a consistency going through his genealogy, and so the point is not necessarily every individual name. We've read every individual name. I'll make mention of a few more of those individual names in a moment, but which three names do you think are probably the most important, the ones that he mentions at the beginning and at the end. Verse 1, he said, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you look at verse 17, and he gives you those three names again, Abraham, David, and Christ. These are the names that are most significant. This genealogy is Matthew's way of explaining that Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. That's the big point of the genealogy. Now, as I read this genealogy this week and and did my study, there were things that I expected to find that I did not find. Perhaps you would expect to find some of the same things I did. And I think once we think through a few of these things, we'll begin to understand the significance of the genealogy. Perhaps you were like me and you would expect that this genealogy is complete, that it's got every name of every generation from Abraham to Jesus. But if you start doing just a little bit of study, you realize, no, there's lots of names that are left out. It's just a summary. It's not a complete exhaustive list of names. And that may confuse you at first because you think, well, it says Abraham was the father of Isaac, and we know that he was. There's no gap in between there. And it says that Isaac was the father of Jacob, and there's no gap there. We understand that from our study of Genesis But you look at other parts and you realize there's big gaps in there. There's skipping multiple generations because that word for was the father of could also be translated was the ancestor of. So you have a reason to understand that there's big gaps here in the genealogy. It's not a complete list of names. You might also have been like me. You expect to find just men listed here because it's a patriarchal society. And so you would think it's just going to be a long list of men's names But in fact, did you notice there were women's names mentioned? Women are included, and we'll discuss why in just a moment. You might think, well, this is just going to be only Jewish names in the genealogy. But in fact, there are Gentiles included in our Lord's genealogy. You might expect that these names that are mentioned are just the good, the righteous, the good, upstanding citizens of Israel. But in fact, when you begin to dig into the stories of all of these people, you understand they're a bunch of scandalous sinners. These are the people 
making up our Lord's genealogy. So you, you might expect, as we said, that this list to be a long list of Jewish men, and to be sure, that's most of the names. And some of them, I'm sure you recognize. Look at that first division. Your Bible probably has this broken down into three paragraphs. So you've already got the divisions in front of you. Division one is verses two through six. And you know some of those names. You know the name of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you might remember the name of Judah. But then once you keep going, you're probably unfamiliar with a lot of those names until you get to David. David, the king, we see him there in the middle of verse six. And the second uh, division, at least in the ESV, starts in the middle of verse 6 and continues down to verse 11. And you see David and Solomon, those names we're familiar with. Those are big names in Old Testament history. But you may not recognize the other names until you get down to that phrase in verse 11. It says, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, we've thought about that recently because we studied Ezra and Nehemiah. You know that that was a catastrophic event in Israel's history when they were kidnapped. They were snatched from their homes. They were taken to Babylon for 70 years. They were gone from the land of Israel. And then that last division there, you probably don't know very many of those names. You might remember Zerubbabel because we mentioned him in Ezra and Nehemiah. But most of those names you don't know. And that's for good reason. They're not in the Old Testament because that's from the history and that gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you're looking for significance in the genealogy just by trying to recognize each and every name, you're going to be in trouble. You're not going to recognize each and every name. There's a lot of names that you don't know or recognize, and that's that's okay. I think it's kind of the point. You get to going in, the, uh, in reading the genealogy, and hopefully I did an adequate job of reading it because there's a little bit of a, a rhythm. It's kind of like a, a train going down the track. It will lull you to sleep until you get to an interruption. Did you notice there were interruptions in the normal flow of the genealogy? Most of it was just so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But then you'd have an extra phrase, something that would slow us down. There would be a little interruption there. Like verse 2, look at verse 2. He mentions that Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. He, he adds that little reminder about Judah having brothers. It's a reminder that in Israel's history there were 12 tribes, 12 patriarchs, but only one tribe would produce the Messiah. There's another interruption like that down in verse 11 where it says, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. You have a few interruptions kind of like that, but let's be honest when you read it. Most of the interruptions are the names of the women in the genealogy. Now, there's some kind of marital advice in there uh, relating to the fact that women are most closely associated with interruptions, but I'll let you all ponder that on your own. That'll hit some of you later today. But that's the reality is when you look at this genealogy, most of the interruptions are connected with the women who are mentioned here. Did you recognize some of those names? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and of course, Mary. Those ladies are mentioned, but you may wonder, why them? Why not all the women that could be mentioned in the genealogy? After all, every child has a mother. That's a revolutionary thought. And so uh, the fact that you could have had so many more mothers listed here, but there's only five mothers listed. Well, let's think about them. Let's try to figure out what is uh, unique about these ladies. Why might they be mentioned? Verse 3 mentions Tamar. Verse 5 mentions Rahab, and then it mentions Ruth. 
And verse 6 mentions the wife of Uriah. Those are close together in proximity. You don't get that fifth woman, Mary, the mother of Christ, down till verse 16. What is unique? What do these ladies have in common? Well, as you may know, they're all women with a past. They all have a story. These are not the founding mothers of Israel that you would elevate as examples to follow in most cases. These are not the women that you would bring home uh, to meet your mother. They all have a story. They have a past. Let's think about it. These women would be considered scandalous in their day. Think about Tamar there in verse 3. Do you remember who Tamar is? Verse 3 says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. If you didn't know any better, you would just assume that that's Judah's wife that she's the mother of the children, but after all, she's actually his daughter-in-law. And the only reason that Judah commits this incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law is because he thought he was hiring a prostitute. Merry Christmas. Judah has this relationship with Tamar, excuse me, and she's mentioned here in the genealogy of Christ, but she's not an upstanding citizen. Then you have Rahab. You remember that Rahab is a prostitute, and Ruth is a foreign woman from a foreign country with foreign gods. And then that fourth woman, she's not even mentioned by name. She's called the wife of Uriah. We know her name is Bathsheba, but that always points us back. She's hardly ever called by her name. She's always mentioned as the wife of Uriah, which reminds us of the great sin that David committed with Bathsheba. Some of these women are plagued by scandal. Some of them are not born in the people of God. They are outcasts. Some of them are Gentiles. These are not upstanding citizens. But you think, wait a minute, is Matthew picking on these women? He's just mentioning these women who have uh, a a questionable uh, past? No, not at all. Do you remember the real story of these men that are mentioned here? These men that sometimes we just act like are just the heroes and they had no, no problems in their backstories. Think about it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you remember who these men really were? Abraham was a moon-worshipping pagan until God saved him. And even after God saved him, Abraham still uh, continued to sin. He was a liar and a coward. He almost gave his wife to another man not once but twice. Like father, like son, Isaac began to do the same thing. And Jacob, oh my goodness, Jacob's name means deceiver, trickster. He's not a good man at all. And then you think about uh, his son, Judah. We've already talked about his sin. These men are not uh, perfect by a long shot. You think about David, we've already referenced his sin. We know Solomon, the wisest king who ever lived, had 700 wives and 300 concubines. How in the world is that considered wise? That's not, because he didn't listen to the own wisdom that God had given him. You recognize these are the heroes of the nation, but they're broken men and women. Not a one of them is without a flaw. Not a a one of them is without sin. In fact, that's the story of the whole nation of Israel. They're plagued by scandal, by rebellion, by idolatry. In fact, it's that idolatry that led them into the exile, the deportation that he mentions there, that whole last section of the genealogy. You remember we discussed that in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, but it was all because of their idolatry. They had turned to other gods. This is why they were sent into exile. None of the people in this list are actually good, upstanding, righteous citizens. All of them are broken, messed up people. We've seen the three titles of Jesus 
We've seen the three divisions that are here in his family tree, but we all must acknowledge the bottom line is that this family tree is messed up. It's twisted. It's broken in so many ways. But that's actually what leads us to the good news of this genealogy. The good news of this genealogy, I want to give you three points of encouragement as you think back on this long list of names. The first encouragement relates to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. We've already talked about how Matthew's whole gospel is framed around this idea of king and kingdom. The king has come. He's coming, announcing the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Matthew's point in beginning his gospel with this genealogy is that the king has come. This is a royal genealogy. By that I mean if you contrast it with Luke's genealogy, Luke goes an entirely different route and he often has different names. And you wonder how is that even possible? Luke is tracing Jesus' actual biological family tree. But Matthew is tracing the royal family tree. He's showing us how Jesus can be included in David's family. In fact, that comes from one more surprise that I haven't mentioned yet. Look at verse 16. As you were reading through the genealogy, you noticed it was the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. And when you get down to the very end, you would expect... In verse 16, you would expect it to say, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus. That's not what it says. In fact, Matthew takes painstaking efforts to make clear that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. And he's going to make that even more clear next week. But even here in verse 16, he says, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Jesus was born of Mary, but Joseph is not the father. And it's this Jesus who is called the Christ. The virgin birth actually really does matter. We'll discuss it in greater detail next week as Matthew emphasizes it in greater detail next week. But for now, he's letting us know that this king has come, and he's come through supernatural circumstances, a supernatural origin. This This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, to bring him praise, the babe, the son of Mary. Jesus was born in miraculous circumstances, but he indeed is the promised one and no one else. This is an encouragement about the kingdom of God because we need to be reminded of this this Christmas season. Think about the news that we see each and every day. We all agree that we're wasting our time looking at the news. There's nothing encouraging to see on the news, and yet all of us waste far too much time every day looking at the news. It's filled with depressing updates, depressing reports. It's filled with politicians promising that if you just promote their party, if you just spend time uh, supporting their causes, then there will be peace on earth. If you let them have their way, then everything will come together. If we would just bow down to this God of the age or that God of the age, then we would have true peace on earth. But we need to be reminded that this is the king. This baby born in Bethlehem, this baby that we're given his genealogy here in Matthew chapter 1, he is the king. Be encouraged concerning the kingdom of God. But the second encouragement regards the providence of God. The providence of God. We've talked about that before. This idea that God is at work through the normal, ordinary circumstances of life, bringing about the exact result that he wants to take place. This is the providence of God. 
Think back through some of these names that we've read in this genealogy. Remember Abraham and Sarah? God promised to them that they would have an offspring, and ultimately he would be Isaac. But do you remember how many times Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands? How many times they tried to bring about the promises of God in their own way, in their own time, in their own plan? But through all of that, God was at work. God was working even as Abraham and Sarah continued to fight against the Lord. God was working to deliver his promises in his timing. Think about David. There's names that are mentioned here. You know that a lot there in that second division, those are the names of kings. Most of them are bad kings. And then, in fact, if you compared this with Chronicles, you would understand there's lots of kings left out. They're all pretty much bad. There's nothing good to be uh, thought of with these kings here in this second division. And yet God was working providentially through that. God brings about the perfect king, the perfect son of David, and a long list of worthless sons of David. Think about the providence of God and that little detail there in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, we've already talked about the circumstances of their conception, but do you remember Genesis 38 when it comes time for the birth of these two sons? One son extends his hand out of his mother's womb, and they tie a string around his wrist so that they can identify this is the firstborn. This is the one who has broken forth from the womb. And yet that baby pulled its hand back in, and the other child was born. Zerah was the one, uh, Judah the father, Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez. Perez is the one who actually was delivered first, but he would be considered the secondborn. Because the other one had stuck his hand out first, and yet God worked through all of this. You see that the secondborn is the one who's used here in this genealogy, Perez, the father of Hezron. If you don't think God is at work, he's working down to the details of which order a set of twins is born. God is at work through all of that. He's working providentially. But do you understand? Most of the people in this genealogy, there were times when they didn't recognize that God was at work. They didn't feel like God was at work. They didn't understand how God was at work. But now, from our point of view, we look at Matthew's genealogy and we understand God was absolutely at work in every life, every day. God is at work. So be reminded of that, dear Christian. Take comfort knowing that God is fully, always at work in his creation. He's at work in his church and he's at work in your life, just as he's at work in the lives of of these people in the genealogy. You may not always know it. You may not always feel it. But one day we'll be able to look back. We'll see the providential hand of God at work. But this ultimately leads us to the, the good news of the genealogy. Be reminded, this third encouragement, be reminded of the grace of God. The grace of God, the final encouragement from this genealogy. We considered the, the scandalous women in this story. And we we talked about some of the details of that. And some people say that perhaps the reason these women are mentioned in this way, it prepares us for the scandal of Mary. After all, Mary is a virgin who will have to announce to her parents, to her fiancé, that she's about to give birth and she has uh, not uh, had sex yet. And so perhaps that scandal, we're being prepared for that by these scandalous women in the genealogy of Jesus. Perhaps that's true. But I think certainly, furthermore than that, we're being reminded that these are the kind of people that Jesus came to save. 
If you look at the scandal of the women who are mentioned, you look at the scandal of the men who are mentioned, if these are the ancestors of our Lord, what are the descendants going to be like? We're told in the book of Hebrews that Christ is bringing many sons to glory. He's saving wretched sinners just like these people, just like you and me. If these are the people in his family tree, what kind of people are he bringing in uh, to the family of God by adoption? People just like us. Be reminded, saints, that Jesus didn't come to save a perfect people because there are none. Do stories like this hit a little too close to home at the holidays? As you think back over some of the stories of the names that are mentioned here, perhaps it reminds you of people that you sat right across from the table at at Thanksgiving. Perhaps it reminds you of people that you're about to sit down with in a few days at Christmas time. Perhaps these people remind you of your own story, your own past. Maybe you're looking for a new beginning, a new creation today. This Jesus, the one of this genealogy, he's offering a new beginning. He's offering you a clean heart, as we read earlier from Ezekiel. Look today to the Christ. He is the star of the story. This genealogy is focusing on him. Stop trying to fix your own mess in your own way. Surrender to the King, Jesus Christ. Seek the Lord while he may found. Draw to him, and he will draw near to you through Christ. If you recognize your need of a Savior today, do not leave here without speaking to one of the pastors, speaking to someone around you. There's no reason to leave here without understanding the Christ who came to save sinners. But saints, we have to all acknowledge We have broken families just like the broken families here in the genealogy of Christ. Are you worried by that this Christmas? Are you reflecting on that? Understand that Christ knows. Christ understands. He's a sympathetic high priest, as we sang earlier, who is able to give you mercy in the middle of your mess. He's a kind and gracious king who saves sinners like you and like me. This is the good news the genealogy of the king. Let's pray.